0: This is a podcast about Jeopardy! Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy! podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy! episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle.
1: And I'm Emily. This is the week of May 3rd. This is the first week of having Bill Whitaker as guest host. I thought he he's done a good, competent job so far. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like his delivery is a little sing-songy. Yeah. Which isn't bad. It's just different from what I'm used to.
0: Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I, I, I agree. There's something about his delivery. And I was... I was trying to pinpoint it because I, I did have that feeling, um, and obviously, like the first game that any of the guest hosts are on, they've all been kind of sh- shaky. You know, they've all been mm-hmm. clearly like, "I've never done this before." Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah.
1: Even the jump from like game one to game two, even though we know that that's like
0: an hour later at most. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um. It just it just seems like you know your first your first twenty minutes of hosting Jeopardy is just always the shake the shaky part, and like they just seem so much more comfortable. Even by Tuesday's game, which was really just recorded like immediately after Monday's game.
0: Yeah, but throughout the week, I think something I noticed is that it seems that Bill Whitaker's voice is thinner Hmm. than the people we are used to. Like just in just in Tomber and like, you know, tone quality. Yeah, it seems to me that he has a a thinner voice, not, not as resonant voice as anybody else we've had. And I don't know if that's the thing that's throwing me off. He's doing a fine job, but I don't know. There was just something. I don't I don't want to make <laughs> it sound like I didn't like it. I think he's doing great. Yeah. But that was my thought.
1: Yeah. That makes sense. On Monday, May 3rd, we have the contestant Cesar Del Peral, an attorney originally from Mayhuez, Puerto Rico. Eliza Eaton Stern, a middle school history teacher from Aurora, Colorado.
0: Woo! Go go Aurora. Uh, uh, she does and- not she does not work in my district though.
1: Hmm. And Emily Sands, a vice president of operations from Chanhassen, Minnesota, whose two day cash winnings total $53,401. And our Jeopardy round categories are History, Comedy Central, The Food Network, E in quotation marks, Vice, and Channels.
0: There was a a strange, uh, I guess, I don't even know if it would be a less specific kind of thing, like a too specific answer in the vice category at the $800 level. The clue is a 1998 study showed release of dopamine, a pleasure bringing neurotransmitter in subjects during a tank driving one of these. Emily guessed what is a simulator, but they wanted a video game. Mm. They don't tell us which video game it is like there. So I get there are plenty of video games that are not simulators, but I guess that specifically that one would have not counted. I'm not sure. Yeah, that was an interesting distinction to me. Yeah. I feel like calling it a simulator would be like, yeah, it's probably fine. but
1: yeah, agreed. I had a, a funny personal coincidence a little higher in that category, which is that I was watching an episode of the show billions right before we wa- before I watched Jeopardy, an episode in which Paul Giamatti smokes a cheroot <laughs> cigar. And then we had at the $400 level and then we switched over to Jeopardy and, and had this category. And at the $400 level, you're supposed to name what Ulysses S. Grant smoked 20 of a day, including the cheroot type, that's cigars. And then right below that at the six, $600 level, the movie in which Paul Giamatti plays Miles, uh, whose vice is wine, that's Sideways. Um but it was, it was funny to see Paul Giamatti and Chirrut right next to each other.
0: Yeah, that is uh, strange. Serendipitous.
1: Yeah. Anyway, Billions is a pretty fun show so far mm. um, in the second season at this point. I haven't watched it.
0: I have watched, however, in the Comedy Central category at the $800 level. I don't need to read the clue. But the answer is Ted Lasso. It's on Apple mm. TV. If you have access to Apple TV, watch Ted Lasso. It is so good. Mm. it was so good alright it's like it's extremely funny but also like heartwarming and engaging it's very good anyway these have been TV recommendations (laughs) Uh, we get the first daily double in the E category at the thousand dollar level Emily finds it it's pick number 23 she is at two thousand Eliza is at three thousand and Cesar is at twelve hundred and she makes it a true daily double Gets the clue, one in this job studies the origin and history of words, and she clearly pronounces no N when she says what is an etymologist, which is correct. Yes,
1: that is correct.
0: I I always remind myself of the differentiation between that and entomologist, because ent sounds like ant, and entomologists (laughs) study bugs. And that's the best association I got.
1: Yeah, that's good.
0: So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Emily is in the lead at 5,400, Eliza is at 3,800, and Cesar is at 1,600. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, Alliterative Authors, Ye old Science, The Arts, African American Women, A Word from the Greek Four, and Prom Music.
1: Uh, the author at the $1,600 level of alliterative authors, um, apparently, per some per some chatter among uh, Jeopardy! contestants, is not only an alliterative author, but also a former, G- former Jeopardy! contestant herself. Um, the clue there is about this author was in Antarctica when she received word that she had won the 1994 Newbery Medal for The Giver. Um, that's Lois Lowry. Apparently, she was on back in the Art Fleming days as a contestant yeah cool yeah i loved the giver when i was younger although it has a metaphorical ending where i'm pretty sure spoiler warning the protagonist dies but i didn't really understand the metaphor and did not realize that he was probably dying as that happened also i think that she then wrote sequels where it where he hadn't died where it, like his like you know vision of finding yeah I, I i don't know at the end he like you know he's like freezing to death and then he has like like a vision of like i can't remember like a like a like a home with a family in it and a warm fire and he you know like there's this there's this whole thing as an adult it now reads to me like obviously he he he's dying uh-huh. um but i missed it when i was a kid and then in the meantime She's written sequels where he wasn't dying. He was just finding a home with a family and
0: a warm fire. <laughs> yeah. What's symbolism? I don't know what yep. that is.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, Daily Double number two comes up in the the arts category at the 1200 level. It's the fifth pick. Um, so we're finding this Daily Double pretty early, and we end up getting both of them out of the way very early in this round. Emily finds this one, and... Makes a big wager, 6,600. That's a true daily double. At this point, um, Eliza's at 2,200. Cesar is at 1,200. And she gets the clue. This American is legendary for the black and white landscapes he captured with his cameras. And they do have an example photo of his landscapes. He has a very distinctive visual style. That's Ansel Adams. And she knows that. So she doubles her score.
0: And Daily Double number 3 is in the ye old science category at the $800 level. Cesar finds this one. He is at $1,600. Emily's way up there at $13,200. Eliza's at $2,200. And uh, he wagers the maximum of 2000 He gets the clue. Phrenology was based on the idea that a person's character could be determined by feeling the shape of this body part. He says, what is the brain? But technically, it is the skull. Mm-hmm which is what they were going for. So he was ruled incorrect. Now, I'm not an expert on phrenologies, but the the idea is that the shape of your skull corresponds to the shape of your brain. And so you can tell certain things like that, but you wouldn't be feeling the brain. You would be feeling the skull. So, like, I, I... I don't have a quibble with this clue. It's just like, you know, what yeah, he said a, it was not Yeah, it's a bummer because he wrong. clearly
1: recognized phrenology as a thing and kind of knew what that was. Right. And missed it kind of on a technicality. Yeah. So, at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Emily has a lot game with 17,200. Eliza's at 7,400. Cesar is at 4,000. And we have the final Jeopardy category, 19th Century Americans. And the clue... His book, An Overland Journey from New York to San Francisco in the Summer of 1859, shows he heeded his own famous advice. Cesar has responded, Who was Frost? Uh, he's thinking of Robert Frost. It's not a bad guess. Yeah. And he's wagered 3401. Uh, so he's trying to get above Eliza. Eliza has responded, Who was Mark Twain? Uh, that was my guess also because I didn't know what famous advice we were talking about or who would have given it. Mm. So I like to think that's a very good guess. Good guess, Eliza. (laughs) Um, (laughs) She's wagered everything, so she drops down to zero. And Emily responds correctly, who is Greeley. That's Horace Greeley. Uh, He is the person who said, go west, young man. Mm -hmm. And Emily has wagered, $23.99. 2399. Uh so she's trying to not risk her lock. That brings her up to nineteen thousand five hundred ninety-nine. And she's our winner going into Tuesday.
0: Yep. And on Tuesday we have the contestants Brittany Eltman, a baker from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hannah Howard an editor from New York, New York, and Emily Sands, a vice president of operations from Chanhassen, Minnesota, whose three-day cash winnings are now $73,000 even. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead, Truce, Reading Material, Pop Culture, and Crossword Clues F. Jeopardy's been really, uh, I don't know if they got a new writer on staff or if they just suddenly decided that they wanted to go hard for Margaret Thatcher. But uh the thousand dollar level of Ding Dong, Judy Garland's Ding Dong The Witch is Dead surged on UK iTunes after this former prime minister passed away. That's Margaret Thatcher. Not too long ago we had another one about how like she just like was terrible to the like labor unions. Mm-hmm. Like the miners and everything. They have been they have <laughs> they've been going going after us. Yeah.
1: Uh right above that Margaret Thatcher clue, we had um a clue that connected to my my snack cake deep dive. <laughs> Ding dongs are individually right. wrapped chocolate cakes from this company. That's the hostess company. Emily got that one.
0: Yes, indeed.
1: <laughs> a lot of these had very personal connections for me, actually. But <laughs> I will, the last personal connection I will highlight is the clue in reading material at the $400 level. The high end Oasis in this brand of e readers has a glass rather than a plastic screen. I, I learned that one the hard way when I was. <laughs> reading the stand by Stephen King and rather than put my book down and leave it in my room I perched my oasis on the side of the sink mm. while I was brushing my teeth and uh, shattered the glass rather than plastic screen <laughs> so <laughs> ah. don't do that kids
0: strongly suggest don't break your stuff mm-hmm you hear it here first
1: yeah Daily Double number one comes up as the 25th pick at the $800 level of reading material. Emily finds this one. She makes it a true Daily Double with $3,800. Brittany's at $4,800 at this point, and Hannah and Emily are tied at $3,800. And she gets the clue combine two words in the New York Times slogan and get the name of this light, pulpy paper it comes on. And she knows that's newsprint. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Emily has taken the lead. She's at 8200 Hannah's at $6,000. Brittany's at 5800 And we have the double Jeopardy categories, Brits and Boats, 20th Century Names, Facts About Countries, American Music, Playing Pope, and Pronouns.
0: In the American Music category at $1,200 level, probably people knew this anyway. But I just did a deep dive on jazz. At the beginning of the 20th century, jazz flourished in Storyville, the red light district of this southern city. And got mm-hmm. it. That's New Orleans. Yes. The birthplace of jazz. Mm-hmm. Did you enjoy the pronouns category? Did that take you way back? Way back <laughs> to your talk about uh, second person pronoun, whatever?
1: Yes, indeed. I, I did yes. enjoy the pronouns category. Um and, uh, and we had some crossover into another one of my interests at the $800 level. It's a homophone of a song such as Abide With Me. Abide With Me is a hymn, H-Y-M-N. So they were looking for him, H-I-M, mm-hmm. there. Yeah. I couldn't remember what the last word of O Canada was. Maybe I overthought it. I started thinking, oh, are there more verses? But mm-hmm. Emily got there. It's the... Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I feel like I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but a really important, like, trivia fact to know, uh, it's in the 20th century names category at the $1,600 level. In 1967, this South African surgeon led a team in performing the world's first human heart transplant. That's Christian Barnard. I, I feel like I've talked about that particular fact before.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: But it's like a, a claim to fame for South Africa, especially. Yep.
1: Yeah. And it comes up a lot. hmm A lot, a lot. Mm-hmm. I felt bad for Emily and Brittany at the $2,000 level of 20th century names. Uh, We had, I don't know what to call it. We had one where where two contestants tried and the third is the one who got it. Uh, The clue there is in, in 1970, this pair followed up human sexual response with Human Sexual Inadequacy. There's quotation marks around those. Those are titles.
0: Um. <laughs> they just did it. <laughs> they just did those things. <laughs>
1: oh, goodness. It's, it's a family podcast.
0: Um, That's how uh, families are made.
1: <laughs> uh, Emily tried Who Are Masters and Kinsey. Brittany tried Who Are Masters and Young. And then finally, Hannah got it with Who Are Masters and Johnson.
0: hmm Daily Double number 2 is in the Playing Pope category. This goes back to Emily's last deep dive. It's at the $1,200 level. Hannah found it. Uh, She is at $12,000. Emily's at $6,200. Brittany's at $4,200. And she wagers $4,000. Gets the clue. In The Agony and the Ecstasy, Rex Harrison played Pope Julius II, taking on Charlton Heston as this artist. And she guesses Michelangelo. Who's Michelangelo? And that's correct. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, that was yeah. That was one of your questions two weeks yep,
1: ago. That's right.
0: I would have gotten it anyway because Pope Julius II. I know it was Michelangelo, but that clue was like, oh yeah, I mm-hmm. just learned this.
1: Yes, I I had that same experience um, because I oh it was an A blank Y quiz. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I looked up information about the agony and the ecstasy and learned that when I was when I was writing that quiz. Learning is great. Daily Double number three comes up in Facts About Countries at the $1,600 level. Emily finds this one as the 15th pick, and she makes it a true Daily Double for the second time in the game. She has 6,200 to Hannah's 16,000 and Brittany's 2,200. I think that's the right strategic move.
0: Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. You got to get back in it.
1: Yep. And she gets the clue. The longest river in Ireland, it flows 220 miles to reach the Atlantic Ocean near Limerick. She tries what is the Liffey, but the correct response here is the Shannon. Yep. So tough break. She drops to zero Mm -hmm. and has to recover with only 15 questions left on the board.
0: Yeah, that pretty much locks it up for Hannah there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So going into Final Jeopardy! Emily's at 5,200, Brittany's at 2,200, and Hannah's in a lock position at 20,800. They get the final Jeopardy category world literature, and the clue this 1970s memoir told of harsh places that metaphorically were like an island chain, quote, from the Bering Strait almost to the Bosporus. Brittany wrote, What is blank? Wagered 2,200. Blank is incorrect, so she dropped down to zero. Uh, Emily got it correct with What is Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn. And she wagered seven ninety nine to not risk her second place, and Hannah did not offer a guess and only wagered two hundred, so she wins with twenty thousand six hundred.
1: So on Wednesday, we have the contestants: Jamie Logan, a writer and consultant from Augusta, Maine; Elliot Goodman, a history and Latin teacher from Culver City, California.
0: He didn't Just have to go right far.
1: That's right there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is literally where the studios are.
1: Uh huh. And Hannah Howard, an editor from New York, New York, whose one-day cash winnings total $20,600. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, religion, Shakespeare family ties, demonyms, non-Alexander Hamilton. Uh, So these turned out to be people whose last name is Hamilton, but they're not Alexander Hamilton. Corporate mascots and... uh, That's vowelistic comms. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Which were really a lot harder than I expected, largely because they chose sitcoms that started or ended with vowels or both right. for most of the they, they chose
0: ones that would be particularly difficult for it. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the $800 level was LV, LC. That's I Love Lucy. That one I was like, oh man, I never would have got there. Because you wouldn't think to put an entire word right. as, a, as a vowel, right? Yep. That one was yes. tough.
1: Yeah, I was expecting more like F R N D S <laughs> um
0: <laughs> France.
1: Uh yes. <laughs> I thought I Love Lucy was a particularly fiendish one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, was, that was clever. Yeah. On the writer's part. The the thousand dollar level of corporate mascots. I did not know the tragic backstory <laughs> of of Charles Entertainment Cheese. <laughs> The clue is. But you
1: did know that the E stands for entertainment. I so. did know that.
0: Uh, the, yeah. the clue is this rodent grew up at Saint Marinara's orphanage, and since he never knew his birthday, he hosted parties for kids. I don't. I don't remember the last time I was in a Chuck E. Cheese. But suddenly, I. I. I have a small part. Part of me that's like sympathetic to this animatronic monstrosity. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness.
1: Yeah, that's a it's a that's a dark backstory for a. um...
0: (laughs) Hey kids, you want to go have fun? Hey, uh, by the way, he was an orphan, and you could be too if you play your cards wrong. (laughs) Uh, We get daily double number one in the Shakespeare family ties category. It is pick number eight. Jamie finds it. She is at eighteen hundred. Hannah's at six hundred. Elliot's at four hundred, and she makes it a true daily double. She gets the clue. This. Tempestuous daughter of Prospero says, Oh, brave new world that has such people in it. Uh, And she gets that correct with who is Miranda. Mm -hmm. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Hannah is at 3,800, Elliot is at 6,000, and Jamie is in the lead at 6,800. We get the double Jeopardy round categories Mr. President, African cities, medical prefixes and suffixes, double O U words movie rules and oh i've offended you which uh i mean the jeopardy writers are leaning into it apparently
1: (laughs) (sighs) yeah this was obviously filmed quite a while ago but um (laughs) yeah felt a little close to home
0: yep I did like that there was a, a sign showing man-spreading at the $800 level. <laughs> uh.
1: Yep. Yeah, there were there were a whole set of, um, like, subway etiquette graphic PSAs mm-hmm. in New York not too long ago, including ones about man-spreading and about not doing those, like, break-dancing performances. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Living in a place that doesn't have uh, high quality mass transit, I wouldn't know about any of that.
1: Mm, yeah, sadly. And I and I appreciated that Elliot was the one to uh, ring in and get man spreading.
0: Mm-hmm. Some of us are trying. Mm-hmm. I can't I can't say how many of us for certain, <laughs> but I am aware of at least some. Definitely,
1: daily double number two comes up in the. Double O U words category at the $1,600 level as the 19th pick. Jamie finds this one and wagers 3,000 of her $14,400. Hannah's at 7,000 at this point and Elliot is at 12,000. And she gets the clue city of southern France on the Garonne River. And she doesn't know that one. She can't come up with any guess. They're looking for
0: Toulouse. Yes. I have been to Toulouse. Oh. We spent very little time in Toulouse. Okay. We caught a train in Toulouse to Paris, and that's it. (laughs) Hmm. It was on a a school trip through Spain and France. So we started in southern Spain, worked our way up through Barcelona, then drove into Toulouse and got on a train (laughs) that we then slept overnight, uh, basically on our way to Paris.
1: Hmm. That sounds intense.
0: It was intense. It was one of those EF tours. And man, oof. You get your money's worth in terms of like sightseeing and events and things. But geez, by like this, you know, sixth day, we're all exhausted and like, uh, we're going to go see Notre Dame. Cool. Mm, like, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. something very actually awesome, but we're just so exhausted and have been going and going and going that we're like, uh, mm-hmm. can we just take a day to sleep and then go do the cool stuff? No. Yeah. Yeah. Daily Double number three is in the medical prefixes and suffixes category at the $1,600 level. Jamie finds it at pick number 27. She is up at 14200 Hannah is at 7,800 and Elliot is close behind at 13,200. She wagers 4,000. She gets a clue these two eiatricians specialize in opposite times of life, and there's often talk of a surplus of one and a shortage of the other. She gets that correct with what are a pediatrician and a geriatrician.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Evidently, one of our previous guests, Rachel Paterno Mahler, both of her parents, one is a pediatrician and one is a geriatrician.
1: Well, that's great. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Elliot's in the lead with 16,800. Jamie is right behind him with 16,200. Hannah is at 7,800. And we have the final Jeopardy category, classic albums. And the clue, the title of this huge hit 1977 album was the idea of the bass player who specified it should be spelled the British way. Hannah can't come up with anything. She has what is question mark, and she's wagered 7,000. So she drops down to 800. Jamie has it correct with what is rumors um, by Fleetwood Mac. Mm-hmm. And she has wagered 16,000, which I think is not optimal, right?
0: Yeah, but,
1: <laughs> yeah, but it works out for her. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So. Um, so, yeah, she ideally here, she should be making a small wager so that if she misses and Hannah doubles up, she'll still win. She should expect that Elliot's going to make a cover bet and drop down significantly if he misses it and if he gets it then you know she won't have a a chance of coming in first right elliot responds what is rumors but he does not make a cover bet uh he has wagered 928 dollars which i assume is significant number of some kind for him
0: yeah um so, so, yeah, if Jamie had done, like, the get a dollar over Elliot's score, Elliot would have won. Mm-hmm. But a big wager works out for her there. Yep. So, on Thursday, we have the contestants Steve Bright, an attorney from Norwell, Massachusetts. Now, is it pronounced Norwell, or is it, is it some Massachusetts pronunciation like nor
1: Ah, that's a good question. I don't actually know for sure.
0: Is it Newell? Is I, it?
1: I'm pre- I think it, I think. Is Gowell's it Narwhal? Correct? Nor- Narwhal. Nor- Narwhal. <laughs> yeah, go with Narwhal. <laughs>
0: okay. Um, Kaylee Hernandez, a musician, food vendor, and optician from Iron River, Michigan. Uh, and Jamie Logan, a writer and consultant from Augusta, Maine, whose one-day cash winnings total $32,200. We've got the Jeopardy! round categories. Around Tennessee, 12-letter words, Air Demonstration Squadrons. Hot Stuff on Base and Hybrid Animal Parents, which they give you the name of a real animal and you give the two animals that are the parents. I thought that was a pretty easy category. Yeah. Because it's like, because like all the names of the birds or birds, all the names of the animals are half of one and half the other.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: We did get a funny guess at the $800 level, the Ferocious Pizzley. And Jamie guessed what is a panda and a grizzly. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> no, uh, uh-uh. yep. uh, turns out there's a polar bear and a grizzly, but mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> which isn't all that surprising. Cause they're, they're nearly the same species. Like they're extremely similar. Yeah. If I recall correctly. Anyway,
1: Steve had a funny wrong guess. In the hot stuff category at the $1,000 level, the clue was Stefano Ferrara is a famous <laughs> maker of these, which can reach a temperature of 800 degrees inside. Uh, Steve tried. What is a calzone? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Ferrara's famous calzones.
1: <laughs> which I love as a guess, <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, But they were
0: looking for ovens. <laughs> yeah, just just the oven. Yeah. I
1: hadn't known anything about air demonstration squadrons, so... Oh!
0: yeah, I, I, got, I got them all. Nice. I used to want to be a, a pilot. Mm. That, that was the trajectory I wanted to be. I wanted to be a naval mm. aviator, maybe a blue angel.
1: Yeah. Daily Double number one comes up in the 12-letter words category at the $800 level. It's the 11th pick, and Jamie finds it. She has... 3,800 at this point. Kaylee's at 600 and Steve's at 200. And Jamie wagers 1,500 and gets the clue reflecting the name of a mythological youth. This adjective means self absorbed and egotistical. And she gets that one correct with what is narcissistic? Mm -hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Jamie's at 8,500. Kaylee is $600 in the hole. Uh, Steve's at 1,400. And we have the double jeopardy categories: 1920s, good reads, potent history, saintly named, the role in common, on speaking, and terms.
0: Kaylee and Steve both had just an extremely rough game. Yeah. Steve managed to get a little bit going in the like the second half of double jeopardy, but they both. I don't know if they were just behind on the buzzer, if Jamie was just that good on the buzzer, and so any of the ones that they really knew, they just weren't getting in on, or mm-hmm. if these just weren't their boards. Because yeah, man, it was yeah, they had a rough time. Mm-hmm. The the writers are, I think, calling out to us again with that potent history category.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, definitely.
0: There was a triple stumper at the two thousand dollar level that I thought. Uh, honestly, I thought I thought this one was easier than. I don't know, maybe not easier than any of the other clues in the category, but uh, in 1923, a beer hall called the Burger Brauchler ugh, in this German city was the starting point of the failed putsch, and that's Munich, and I I don't know, in my, in my mind, the only time I use the word putsch is in regards to the Munich putsch or the beer hall putsch, so mm-hmm. I was like, well, it's Munich, because that's the only time that term is used. But no one rang in for it.
1: Yeah. I don't think I had heard the word putsch. Mm. Although I do associate Munich in particular with beer halls. So that would have been my guess if i had if I'd been forced to guess
0: daily double number two is in the saintly named category uh it's pick number five pretty early it's at the 1600 level jamie finds this one she is at 9300 kaylee is at negative 1400 and steve's back at 1000 uh she wagers 2700 gets the clue used to treat depression this plant and they showed a picture is named for the man who baptized jesus and she works it out that that is saint john's wart
1: mm-hmm.
0: i did not get there i was like john the baptist Baptist flower, (laughs) Johnny's flower. What what is this called? I have no idea. Yeah.
1: Mm Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. I got there. I did okay on on all of the saintly names in that category. Yeah. And I felt for Kaylee on the on the wrong guess about the dog breed when she tried for uh, what is a Bernese Mountain Dog Mm -hmm. for the dog breed developed by monks living in a Swiss monastery. Bernese Mountain Dog doesn't quite fit. The category, they were looking for a St. Bernard. So Jamie got the rebound on that. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number three comes up in the On Speaking category at the $1,600 level. It is the 28th pick. It turns out to be the last one of the round. Steve finds it and he wagers $4,400 of his $4,600. Jamie's at $18,400 and Kaylee is at 200 Now, if Steve had wagered everything here, he would have gotten to exactly half of Jamie's total, and it would not have been a lot game. If he gets um, it correct, if he got it correct, yeah, that, that's I think he couldn't have known whether they would go on to the next two clues. But it, Andy pointed out on the Jeopardy fan, and and I agree strategically here, going all in is the right move um, yeah. because your only chance to be in contention for the win if the buzzer rings after this is to is to have. Bed it all and gotten it right yeah he gets the clue father to a supreme court justice this poet wrote speak clearly if you speak at all carve every word before you let it fall he struggles with it for a little bit and then guesses who is bryant uh they were looking for oliver wendell holmes yeah
0: that one seemed really tough to me i don't know oh I, i did not get there at all yeah, of course, it's a poet, so it's my weakest. Category.
1: I don't think I know Oliver Wendell Holmes Senior as a poet especially well, but I've heard enough about Oliver Wendell Holmes Junior, the Supreme Court Justice, mm-hmm. and had people say not Oliver Wendell Holmes Senior, who is a poet. Um, you I, know, so like, I feel like he only comes gotcha. up in the context of like differentiating him from his more famous same name son. Hmm. In my experience,
0: yes, that is a conversation I've never had.
1: Oh, okay. Well, until I, now. Yeah.
0: <laughs> now I know. Steve drops down to two hundred, and the the end of round buzzer goes off, and oof, we have an emotionally kind of uh, feeling end yeah. of the round there. Jamie's in a lock at eighteen thousand four hundred. Kaylee has remained in the red for pretty much the entire double Jeopardy round, so she's at negative two hundred, and Steve is at two hundred, so Kaylee doesn't get to play. And the final Jeopardy! category is Countries National Anthems. The clue is with words written by a bishop of Urgol. Its anthem praises Charlemagne and says it was born a princess between two nations. Steve guesses what is Italy? Wagers 106. That's incorrect. Jamie guesses what is Turkey? Wagered 400. That's also incorrect. They were looking for Andorra. Mm -hmm. in The Pyrenees between France and Spain. Yeah, did you know that one, Kyle? Uh, I I did not know. I was like, could be Andorra, could be Liechtenstein. Mhm. Not sure which one has to do. Like, I I was leaning toward Andorra because Charlemagne is like French. Mhm. In origin, yeah. so I was like, I guess. But could be Belgium. I don't know. I don't know countries' national anthems, so.
1: Yeah, I was kind of running through um small countries of Europe in my head, but didn't. Uh, didn't think of Andorra in time. So on Friday, May 7th, we have the contestants, Sarah Bigler, a stay-at-home parent from Syracuse, New York, Juliet Mayer, a graduate student originally from the Plains, Virginia, and Jamie Logan, a writer and consultant from Augusta, Maine, whose two-day cash winnings total $50,200. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, a cinematic wedding abroad, Finish the Poetry Line, Americana, Clichés, Sheep, and Just Got Real.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Now, they say it's a family show. But Do they?
0: <laughs> we say it's a family show. Did they I, say it's I a family
1: like, show? I feel like I've heard that, like, occasionally as a joke.
0: Mm-hmm. Like when- When
1: something is, like, venturing a little too close to off-color.
0: Right, like when Ken Jennings says uh ho what's, instead of what's rate.
1: A Yeah. <laughs> Which again was a valid response to the clue and he should have gotten credit
0: for it. I think I think it yeah, should've yep. worked.
1: These three contestants played a phenomenal game of Jeopardy.
0: They really did. Yeah.
1: Uh yeah. Fifty-five correct answers across the three of them, so only five Questions ended up not being correctly answered.
0: Mm-hmm. They, it was impressive. And it was, it felt slow to me. I don't know the pace mm. of it felt really slow, but they got through all the clues and they did really well.
1: Uh, there was an interesting reversal at the $200 level of sheep. Uh, the clue there was in a children's rhyme. These four words proceed. Have you any wool? Juliet rang in with what is black sheep? black sheep and was ruled incorrect and then jamie got the rebound with what is baba black sheep um, mm. but then they ended up reversing it because there is somewhere that has black sheep black sheep have you any wool? yeah it's an l frank bomb version oh uh l frank bomb who just came up last week
0: yeah interesting uh, yeah Got a, got another another reminder that uh, The Second Coming was, in fact, written by William Butler Yeats. in the Finish the Poetry line, the $800 level. An Apocalyptic Vision by W.B. Yeats says, Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Or, sorry, the center cannot this, and uh, Julia got it with what is hold. Mm-hmm. I know the line. Apparently, it took me 15 years to learn who wrote it.
1: Any idea why... Both the 200 and the 1000 level of a cinematic wedding abroad started with Abba Dabba Doo. I get it for the $200 level. It was a clue about Mamma Mia. I don't know anything about Muriel's wedding, though.
0: Nor do I. Huh.
1: Okay. To Google we go. Google we go. Ah, Muriel, a socially awkward young woman. Spends her time listening to ABBA songs and perpetually daydreams of a glamorous wedding to get her out of the dead-end town of porpoise spit and away from her domineering father. Okay, so... Uh, there we go. There we go.
0: Daily Double number one is in the Americana category at the $2,000 level. Jamie finds it. She is at 1200 Juliet's at 600 and Sarah is at 0 It's only pick number seven. And she wagers all twelve hundred. She gets the clue: Boot Hill Graveyard is still a popular draw in this town, about thirty miles from the Arizona-Mexico border. And she gets correct with what is Tombstone. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've talked about Tombstone a number of times on
1: Yeah, Tombstone, podcast. comes up.
0: It certainly does. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Jamie is in the lead at seventy-eight hundred. Juliet is at five thousand, and Sarah is at twenty-eight hundred. And we get the Double Jeopardy categories laying down the scientific law, adjectival evidence, monks, windows and doors, play that folky music, and a whopping ton of a city with ing ton in quotation marks, which might be the longest quotation mark that they've ever had, but I don't know. Yeah. It's a a big one.
1: I have mixed feelings about the wording of the four hundred dollar level, twentieth uh, century monk John Main popularized meditation among Christians, including saying this a personal sacred word. Mm, yeah. There's a huge range of kinds of meditative practices yeah. in the various religious traditions, and Christianity has to some degree appropriated some Eastern meditative practices. In recent years, um, but also has its own meditative traditions that go way back before the 20th century. Yeah. So I feel like maybe there would have been a more accurate way to word that.
0: Sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The the word they were looking there for there was mantra comes out of I'm not sure if it comes originally out of Hinduism or Buddhism. Um, yeah. But like yeah the the use of, of mantras I think I think it starts with I think it comes out of Hinduism and from Hindu practices mm-hmm. to Buddhism. That's a monk's category is where we find daily double number two. Uh, it's at the $2,000 level. And Sarah finds it at the 10th pick. She has $5,200 at this point to Jamie's $10,600 and Juliet's $9,800. She wagers 3500 of it. Uh, which if she gets it correct, will take her into a um, closer third place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, She gets the clue. A biography called the monk in the garden is subtitled the lost and found genius of him, the father of genetics. And she can't pull it. I felt like I I saw that, like she knew it was a name she knew and she was trying to get to it in time, but she just didn't, didn't make it. Uh, They're looking for, for Mendel, Gregor Mendel.
0: I just have to stop and make sure that I am thinking of Gregor Mendel or Dmitri Mendeleev.
1: Oh yeah.
0: Make sure, like, okay, the longer one did the periodic table, the shorter one did the peas or whatever.
1: Peas or whatever. <laughs> I don't. I, I, yes. I know
0: pretty much nothing about the actual like specifics of it. I just know that he. I think. I think it was peas, and yeah. he did genetics.
1: Yep. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that's as much as I can tell you about it.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's about all I've got also.
0: Sure. Yeah. So she drops down. And then she finds Daily Double number three five picks later in the Whoppington category at the sixteen hundred dollar level. Uh she is at twenty nine hundred, Jamie is still at ten thousand six hundred, and Juliet has moved up to eleven thousand four hundred. Uh and she bets it all, because she should at that point. She gets the clue, the Thoroughbred Owners and Breeders Association is headquartered here. And she gets that correct with what is Lexington. Presumably Kentucky. Yes. <laughs> uh, my gut reaction was like, oh, Louisville. Like totally ignoring the,
1: the category. The category.
0: <laughs> and then I was like, oh wait, no. Good thing I wasn't on.
1: In that category, I somehow said. Bloomington instead of Burlington. Uh. So we're all having our moments. <laughs> so at the end of the double jeopardy round, Jamie is in the lead with 19,400. Juliet has 15,800. And Sarah's at 9,800. And we have the final Jeopardy category, Shakespeare and History. And the clue, Macbeth has a vision of a line of eight Scottish kings, the eighth holding a mirror to reflect this ninth in line who may have been in the audience. Sarah doesn't come up with anything. Um, uh, She just has who is written down. Mm -hmm. And she has wagered $4,500. That takes her down to fifty three hundred a smaller wager would have been strategically better here um because it first covers the possibility of a double up from second and second covers the possibility of a double up from third then a small wager would have would have helped her uh in the event of I think a triple stumper or if she'd gotten it and the other, if she'd gotten it and the other two have missed, she would have, she would have won regardless of the size of the bet, but in mm. a, she could have, she could have wagered to, uh, to have a higher chance of winning in a triple stumper. Um, yeah. But anyway, she drops down to 5,300. Juliet has found the correct response. Who is James the first, uh, James, the first of England, James, the sixth of Scotland, same guy. Also, the James of the King James Version of the Bible. And uh, Juliet has wagered 8,000. And Jamie has responded, Who is Macduff? Seems like she struggled with this clue and maybe thought she was supposed to be thinking of a character in In the play play. rather than a historical personage who might have been an audience member. Right. Um, you know, Macduff is in fact in Macbeth. It's not a it's not a bad guess if you've understood the clue in the way that maybe she did. She had a cover bet of twelve thousand two hundred and one, so she drops down to seventy one ninety nine. Uh so Juliet as the as the only one who got it right, uh in a in a reasonably close game, I think everyone ended up in contention because of the way the scores landed. Juliet is our winner with twenty three thousand eight
0: hundred. Uh so that's the end of the week? And uh, this is the point in the show where we uh, remind you that we have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash potent uh, You can find some content on there. And <clears throat> if you uh, feel the desire or compulsion to support us financially, that is where you can do it uh, at any level. Uh, help us keep this podcast breaking even. That's that was really our goal with the whole thing. We're not not looking to make a living off of this, but just want to make sure we're covering our operational costs. Uh, Mm -hmm. And we appreciate those of you who are contributing already uh, to help us do that. We also want to remind you uh, to check out uh, opportunities to continue helping out in your community and uh, our country at large. Uh, We point to you to communityjusticexchange.org and blacklivesmatter.com as well as the uh, GoFundMe for uh, various uh, Stop Asian Hate uh, groups, Asian Asian American and Pacific Islander uh, support funds for uh, communities around the country. You can find them there as well.
1: Mm -hmm. So Kyle, do you have deep dive guesses?
0: Oh, I do. I have too many, like always. Whenever it's your week, I'm always like, oh, there are like five or six. That would be really interesting. Uh, Are you going to be talking about Phlogiston?
1: I considered it, but no.
0: Okay. Are we talking about the Cyrillic Alphabet?
1: Uh, Briefly considered it, but also no.
0: Okay. Last one is the Munich Putsch.
1: Uh, No, we are not. Um, Of course not. So we are talking about a missed clue from Monday's game, the Jeopardy round, the food network category at the $800 level. Escoffier is said to have invented this dish of a certain fruit, sugar and brandy flambéed and spooned over vanilla ice cream. Uh, Eliza tried what is bananas foster, which is that's the neg bait on that clue. Mm -hmm. Um, Cherry's Jubilee is what they were looking for. um, And That turned into a triple stumper. And so I thought Escoffier is a name that I know, but I don't know anything about him. Okay. So I figured I'd look him up. Sweet. Learn a little bit about Escoffier and uh, tell you what I found. Okay. Yeah. And it's been it's been a little while since I did a, a food deep dive. I think the last one was the snack cakes one. So we've gone in terms of food deep dives from the very lowbrow to the very highbrow, which <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah. Which is what we're here uh, for, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Auguste Escoffier, his full name is Georges Auguste Escoffier, uh was a French chef, restaurateur and culinary writer whose contributions were seminal to French au cuisine. He was known as the Roi des Cuisinier, a Cuisinier des Roi, that is, the King of Chefs and the Chef of Kings. He was born in 1846 uh, and lived until 1935. Uh, so, his, the, the years that he was really um, active and influential uh, in food and culture were kind of late 19th to early 20th centuries. His uh, Le Guide Culinaire is still used as a reference work. And uh, his approach to kitchen management, revolutionized restaurant practices and contemporary restaurants have kitchens that are very much based on Escoffier's innovations. Um, And he's especially known for codifying the recipes for the five mother sauces of Uh. French cuisine. We're recording on Mother's Day. So I felt like the mother sauces was kind of fun for for today. I know it'll be after Mother's Day by the time people listen to this. So Escoffier was born in the village of villeneuve loubet near Nice on October 28, 1846. At the age of 12, um, he had been showing early promise as an artist, but his father took him out of school to start an apprenticeship in the kitchen of his uncle's restaurant uh, called Le Restaurant Francais. Uh, okay. <laughs> it was 1846. He <laughs> didn't really need a really innovative restaurant title. Right. He didn't have a very good experience as an apprentice. He was bullied and picked on. He was very short, and actually, he was too short to safely open the oven doors, Um mm. He was just twelve at the time. I think he, he, you know, he he continued to grow. I think he, I think that stopped being an issue for him when he <laughs> attained adult stature. Uh, but he uh, he started wearing boots that had um, like heels, like high heels on them mm-hmm. to to help him out with. With some of that. He showed such an aptitude for cooking that he was soon hired by the nearby Hotel Bellevue. And then the owner of a fashionable Paris restaurant called Le Petit Moulin Rouge offered him a position as apprentice roast cook. So he went to Paris in 1865 at the age of 19 to start working in restaurants there. Only months after arriving in Paris, he was called to active military duty and given the position of army chef. He served for seven years in the army. Uh, The Franco-Prussian War broke out during this time, and he ended up serving uh, at Metz as the chef de cuisine of the Rhine army. And his army experience led him to study canning techniques a bit by 1878, his military service was over. Um, and at that point, it's not a, exactly clear when he opened the restaurant precisely, but certainly it was opened by 1878, his own first restaurant, uh, Le Faison d'Or in Cannes. Uh, that means the golden pheasant Escoffier was the great, the first great chef who worked directly for the public throughout his entire career. Um, prior to this, the great French chefs generally worked in the kitchens of royalty or nobility or in private clubs, not in restaurants that were open to the public. As a restaurateur, he created the brigade system of kitchen management. Uh, restaurant kitchens at that point tended to be chaotic and... There was a lot of, uh, I guess, drinking on the job. It was kind of, you know, rowdy. I'm given to understand that kitchens can still be rowdy, um, but he introduced the kind of system of hierarchy and the kinds of like chef and sous chef and like those kinds of positions, if I understand correctly. Introduced practices of sanitation standards being sort of part of how restaurant kitchen management worked. And, uh... All of those practices have, you know, really influenced how restaurant kitchens function to this day. In 1878, he married Delphine Daffys. Daffy. I don't know how, you, how, to, hmm. how, how much to, to Frenchify this name. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, she, was a, she was a daughter of a publisher. She was also noted as a poet. Escoffier apparently had won her hand in marriage in a bet with her father over a game of billiards. But as far as I was able to find, it seems like they had a happy marriage. Um,
0: <laughs> Good. <laughs> uh, a
1: bet over a billiards game seems like a not a great start from my point of view, but, you know, whatever. They would go on to have three children, uh, Paul, Daniel, and Germain, although Daniel would die in World War I. Mm-hmm. In 1884, they moved to Monte Carlo where Escoffier was employed by César Ritz, who was the manager at the time of the new Grand Hotel. Uh, And Escoffier was brought in to take control of the kitchens of the establishment. The French Riviera at that time was a winter resort. So that's where they were in the winter. And then during the summers, they were in Lucerne, where he ran the kitchens of the Grand Hotel National, um, also managed by Ritz. And it seems like here, and maybe his previous restaurant, his his kind of style takes shape. Um, he really strove to simplify the art of cooking, to cut down on excessive garnishes, heavy sauces, and elaborate presentations, and kind of simplify and let the ingredients shine. In 1890, Ritz and Escoffier accepted an invitation uh, from... Richard cart to transfer to his new hotel in London, the Savoy hotel uh, mm-hmm. together with a third member of their team, Louis Echenard. Uh, Ritz put together what he described as a little army of hotel men for the conquest of London and Escoffier recruited French cooks and reorganized the kitchens. Um, And the Savoy under their leadership was a great success. Um, It attracted a lot of distinguished and moneyed clientele. Uh, The Prince of Wales was a frequent patron. The chef of the Royal family, Gregor von Gorog was Uh, a big fan of Escoffier's work. And aristocratic women who, before that point, did not typically dine in public restaurants, um, started to come to the Savoy as sort of a a social thing. At the Savoy, Escoffier created a lot of famous dishes. Peach Melba, Pesh Melba, was one that he created there in 1893 to honor the Australian singer Nellie Melba. Mm -hmm. Also Melba Toast, which... I'm sort of per- perplexed <laughs> by Melba Toast, uh, but you know whatever. Uh, and then uh, some of some of his then famous creations have not really stood the test of time as much. La Sarah Bernhardt was a strawberries with pineapple and curaçao sorbet dish. There was a flaming ice thing. There were a bunch of uh, trendy dishes, often named after the public figure who. It, inspired them or who, who you know, if, if someone uh, famous really liked a dish, it, it would end up named after them. Mm. In 1897, the Savoy Board of Directors noticed that the hotel's business was very successful, but the revenues were falling. And so they discreetly hired an auditing company and a private investigation company. And after six months of investigation, they uh, found substantial evidence of fraud. So Ritz, Eschenard and Escoffier were dismissed. Uh, Most of the kitchen staff quit out of loyalty to Escoffier. The three initially planned to sue for wrongful dismissal, but they eventually settled and signed confessions. Um, And Escoffier's Hmm. confession was the most serious. He apparently had been taking kickbacks from the food suppliers worth up to 5% of the purchases. Yeah, not great. The Savoy had sustained 16,000 British pounds in losses, um, and Escoffier was supposed to repay 8,000, but he only had 500 pounds, so they took that. Um,
0: <laughs> and called <the> it good? Yep. <laughs>
1: okay. Uh, you would think that would be a career-ender, but it was not. Uh, by this time, the three... Well, I think it was... Ritz and Escoffier at this point, for, for this next part, uh, Ritz and Escoffier were on their way to launching their own establishments. They formed the Ritz Hotel Development Company, with Escoffier setting up kitchens and recruiting chefs for the Paris Ritz, and then the Carlton Hotel in London. Uh, the Carlton Hotel kind of beat out the Savoy as the favorite of high society clientele, Tea at the Paris Ritz became fashionable, sort of a like a like a British afternoon tea style tea, um, but in Paris where they they hadn't you know that hadn't been a thing. But Escoffier was kind of distressed by it. He did not like the whole idea of a substantial late afternoon mini meal. And there's a quote from him asking, "How can one eat jam cakes and pastries and enjoy a dinner? The king of meals an hour or two later. How can one appreciate the food, the cooking, or the wines?" In 1903, he published his seminal Le Guide Culinaire. The English title for that is A Guide to Modern Cookery. Um, I think it's been published under other titles also, but that was the the first translation that had that title, which is especially remembered for his codification of the mother sauces. So let's take a moment on the mother sauces. Mother sauces are a concept from French cuisine where there are these basic sauce recipes, the mother sauces, from which... Other sauce recipes are derived. The other sauces are daughter sauces or uh, petite sauces. So, you know, you add various ingredients or you make these small substitutions. But, you know, if you if you know your mother sauces, then it's like, oh, you know, you you make such and such mother sauce. But like you add lemon juice or, you mm-hmm. know, you you know, shallots or, you know, whatever. Escovier didn't originate the idea of mother sauces. That concept goes Back at least 50 years before him, a famous chef, Marie-Antoine Carême, who was working in the early 19th century, had published a classification of grande et petite sauces in 1833. And Carême had classified four grand sauces as uh, Espagnole, velout, allemande, and bechamel. Now, people will say that Escoffier had five mother sauces in his list, but that's not quite correct. In his 1903 guide, he listed four mother mother sauces in the warm sauces section of the book. Um, And the four warm mother sauces in his way of thinking were Espanol, sauce Espanol, uh, velouté, bechamel, and tomate. So he added tomato sauce, to carême's list mm. and allemand doesn't appear in his list of mother sauces because he thinks of it as a daughter sauce of velouté so espanol is like a brown sauce it's you, you reduce like beef stock or another brown stock and think thicken it with brown roux. so roux is like butter and flour that have been cooked together and how long you cook them sort of you know like the, the longer you cook it the browner it is so like most brown great like thanksgiving gravy kind of kind of sauces mm-hmm. are uh are typically i think similar to an espanol um like if you order like the steak au poivre uh with like the like the the steak with peppercorns and there's like a brown sauce on that that's a that's a variation of sauce espanol this is it, it comes up you know it's it it's some like many brown sauces that you encounter are basically similar to a sauce espanol it's like beef broth, butter flour. If it's brown, then it's related to Escoffier's idea of sauce Espanol. Mm-hmm. Uh, velouté means velvety. Uh, it's a white sauce with similar ingredients to sauce espagnole. So this is like a clear stock. So like a chicken stock or a fish stock. Um, and then it's thickened with white roux. So butter and flour, but you don't cook them until they brown. You just barely let them combine often a white wine sauce, and is basically a version of sauce velouté. You know, it starts with Mm -hmm. clear stock and white roux, and then you add white wine and and it turns into a white wine wine sauce. Bechamel is a sauce of milk and white roux. And then Mornay is what you call it if you add cheese. Uh, It's the daughter sauce of bechamel. So if you've had like homemade macaroni and cheese, you've probably had you know, something that was bechamel based and then tomato sauce. Like everyone, you, you've you all had tomato sauce, I think, unless somebody listening has a tomato allergy or something. It's a tomato sauce. It's a sauce made of tomatoes. <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> Tell me more.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so the confusion around Escoffier's list of four and the better known list of five has to do with hollandaise and mayonnaise. Mm. Mayonnaise. Uh, uh, so... Escoffier listed the four mother sauces in a chapter about warm mother sauces, and in a separate section about cold sauces, he said that mayonnaise should be considered a mother sauce because most cold sauces derive from it, which I initially was like, what? That's wild. And then I started thinking about like, I mean, to this day, right, like salad dressings, right? Like ranch dressing, blue cheese dressing, right? Like every dip.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Well, not every dip. You know, but like, but a lot of them, a lot of dips, a lot, a lot of dips, right? Like, plus the things that are classically like daughter sauces of mayonnaise, like remoulade. Grubiche mm-hmm. is a fun one. I mm. I encountered that one for the first time a few months ago. Tartar sauce is right. a, a mayonnaise-based sauce. The special sauce on your Big Mac is a mayonnaise-based. It's it is a mayonnaise-based right. condiment, right? So Escoffier had that list of four and then said that mayonnaise was the mother sauce of cold sauces. But then Hollandaise gets added to the kind of canonical list of mother sauces these these days. So the confusion probably stems from a very loose English translation of Escoffier's work. Uh, Mm. The 1907 abridged English edition listed Hollandaise as a basic sauce alongside the other four mother sauces. Arguably, Hollandaise is like... Related to mayonnaise. Yeah. It's like an emulsified egg and fat thing with lemon. Hollandaise is served warm, typically, but like there are a lot of similarities. And like you can make a case that like, you know, if mayonnaise is your mother sauce, then hollandaise arguably is like fits into the mayonnaise category, weirdly enough. But anyway, yeah, Escoffier did not consider hollandaise a mother sauce. He did list it in the warm sauces, but like not as a mother sauce or under any of the other mother sauces. These days, it gets listed as one of the five mother sauces. And uh, that's kind of how that happened. Uh, In 1913, Escoffier met Kaiser Wilhelm II on board the SS Imperator, uh, one of the largest ocean liners of the Hamburg-America line. The culinary experience on board the ship was overseen by the Ritz-Carlton team And the restaurant on the ship was a reproduction of Escoffier's Carlton restaurant in London. Um, So he supervised the kitchens on board during the Kaiser's visit to France. And the Kaiser was so impressed uh, that he insisted on meeting Escoffier the morning after sort of a big dinner where legend has it, he told Escoffier, I am the emperor of Germany, but you are the emperor of chefs. (laughs) Um, Starting in 1906, uh, Ritz started moving into retirement, uh, leaving Escoffier as the figurehead of the Carlton until Escoffier retired in 1920. Uh, Many people trained under Escoffier, um, but one particularly notable one is Chef Akiyama Tokuzo, who studied under Escoffier uh, before returning to Japan to be the imperial chef for Japan, and uh, that sort of led to um, the spread of French cuisine in Japan. Um, and to this day, some of the best fresh French restaurants in the world are in Japan. Also in France, but you know, what? <laughs> but yeah, no, the, the the French cuisine scene in Japan apparently is outstanding. Mm. Uh, in 1928, Escoffier helped create the World Associ- Association of Chefs Society and became its first president. And uh, he died in uh, 1935 on February 12th at the age of 88, less than a week after his wife, Delphine. Oh. Yeah. And he's buried in the family vault at villeneuve loubet So that's the life of Auguste Escoffier. Cool. Yeah, it was fun to research him a little bit.
0: Yeah, that's a name that when I hear it, I'm like, yeah, I've heard that name before.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's
0: as much as I knew. So all of that was brand new information for me. That's Yay.
1: Great. Yeah. And like mother sauces come up in trivia, um, yeah. for sure. And like the existence of Escoffier. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So are you ready for a quiz? Uh, yeah. All right. So, uh, this is a quiz inspired by the mother sauces. Um, to get six questions, I had to include hollandaise and mayonnaise. Um, uh. Yeah. And I tried where I could to make these not food questions. Okay. Um, <laughs> but there are a couple of food questions in here. All right. So, question one mayonnaise. Mayonnaise has a bad reputation as a food poisoning culprit. Even in literature, in fact. Uh, What novel by Sylvia Plath includes an episode in which the protagonist and all of her fellow interns fall ill after being served a salad of crab meat and mayonnaise served in avocado
0: halves? Well, I know of precisely one work by Sylvia Plath, and that is The Bell Jar. So I'm going to go with The Bell Jar.
1: The Bell Jar is her only novel, and you are correct. There we go. Yeah. I actually looking into this, I discovered that there are studies showing that commercially prepared mayonnaise actually reduces food spoilage. Mm. Um, And the reason that we associate mayonnaise and food poisoning is because the places where we tend to have like mayonnaise salads are just not great food safety environments, Um, specifically (laughs) like picnics. Like it's entirely possible that the prevalence of mayonnaise based salads at picnics is like because the mayonnaise slows down uh, the growth of harmful bacteria, right? Like there may be, you know, some some wisdom there. Um, right. Okay. But then what you end up with is is people being like, oh, mayonnaise, like you get food poisoning from mayonnaise. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Huh.
0: That's but funny. it turns
1: out like, yeah, the the emulsion like reduces the water that's available for bacteria to grow and the acidity and the salt are both kind of helpful for reducing bacteria. And um, yeah, it turns out it actually is is helpful in preventing <laughs> food poisoning, <laughs> which is the exact opposite of what I thought two hours ago.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, I am much more proud to eat mayonnaise in so many different forms.
1: Yeah. All right. So you're at 10 points. Question two bechamel while mayonnaise comes up a lot as a pop culture reference bechamel references are a little thin on the ground um but bechamel does come up as lara and dana describe their propensity for kitchen mishaps in what showtime drama series that ran from 2004 to 2009 this show follows an ensemble cast of friends in west hollywood and it was the first in American television, where the characters were all lesbian, bisexual, and transgender, and/or transgender.
0: Yeah, they—they they are all—all all of them. <laughs> uh, I do not know this. Showtime. I do not know this. I pro- actually—I probably have heard this. Um. Yeah, I'm just gonna have to take a pass on this one.
1: All right. This is the show, The L Word.
0: I did, I did know that show existed. I was not aware that that entire cast was... Or the entire mm-hmm. cast of characters. Yeah.
1: Yes, yeah. The characters it's all are... I be... don't know about the
0: actors. Yeah, yeah um, that's interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I have not actually watched The L Word, um, but it was, it was critically acclaimed. It's supposed to be good. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll get around to it one of these days. All right. Question three. Velouté. Velouté recipes vary, uh, but many start by sautéing mirepoix, a classic mixture of three aromatic vegetables. What are the three ingredients of mirepoix?
0: Well, I have no idea if this is the same, but I just had a conversation with my mom about cooking Cajun food, and she learned from Justin that the holy trinity of Cajun food are celery, onions, and green pepper. So that's what I'm gonna go with. Ooh, so close.
1: Celery, onion, and carrot <sighs> are are the mirepoix
0: mm. of
1: French cuisine. Wow. Well,
0: if it's Cajun, it's you know it's a little different than French, so mm-hmm.
1: I'll take that. That's that's true. Um, but yeah, no, they're 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 related uh, Cajun cuisine I think also makes heavy heavy use of uh, like roux. All right. Uh, so question four Espanol. Uh, sauce. The origin of Espanol sauce's name is disputed, but one account attributes it to the 1615 marriage of Anne of Austria, a Spanish princess and Austrian archduchess of the Habsburg family, to what French king? Anne is said to have brought Spanish cooks to help prepare the wedding feasts, who offered the innovation of adding tomatoes to French brown sauce, uh, creating the... um, Recipe for sauce Espanol. Okay. I so do have a hint if you want it.
0: Probably. What's the year?
1: Uh, 1615.
0: Oof. Yeah, I'm going to need a hint.
1: All right. Anne and this king would have a more historically remembered son with the same name as the king in question, but of course a different reg- uh, regnal number.
0: I mean, if it's a French king from basically 1600 to... 1793. I'm gonna guess Louis. Yeah. And if you need me to use a number, I will give you a number.
1: Could I could you, you want to try for a number?
0: I mean, if you're gonna go for a more famous son, I'll go with Louis the Thirteenth.
1: Louis the Thirteenth is correct. Okay.
0: <laughs> Ooh, I was like, man, I have nowhere to go with this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Alright, you are at twenty points. And question five, sauce tomate. Tomatoes came to Europe from the New World, but are part of what family with species around the globe? This family includes many toxic plants, but also edible plants, including potatoes, eggplants, bell peppers, and chili peppers.
0: Uh, That would be the nightshade family.
1: That is correct. And I learned recently that tobacco also is a nightshade.
0: Ah, yes, which is why I'm sure... In that famous Simpsons episode, you can crossbreed tomatoes and tobacco to get tomaco.
1: <laughs> I don't remember that one.
0: <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, Bert oh, gets addicted. Goodness.
1: All right, so you're at 30 points, and we're going to call the category for the final question Famous Foods.
0: Famous Foods. I'll, I'll go 25. All right.
1: So for 55 points... Hollandaise can be a companion to vegetables, chicken, or fish, but these days it's probably most famous as a component of what classic brunch dish, which is said to have been created at Delmonico's restaurant in
0: 1860? I mean, I would assume that's Eggs Benedict. It
1: is Eggs Benedict. Yeah. um, And uh, it seems like it was maybe invented as a hangover food, Uh, (laughs)
0: uh,
1: which is how it still functions. Uh, in many in ways, part. yes. <laughs> also as a also as a Mother's Day food, um,
0: yeah, or, or a know. nice nice kind of food. Yeah, you could you could have it with your mimosas, Yes. nursing the hangover.
1: Mm-hmm. I do enjoy a good Eggs Benedict. I do too. Yeah. All right. So congratulations, Kyle. You are finishing with fifty-five points, and uh, thanks for potting with me. Of
0: course, it was yeah. it was my pleasure.
1: Yeah. And uh, thanks, listeners, for spending your time with us. Uh, Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you would be so kind. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's on patreon.com slash potentpotables. And uh, we also would love if you have friends who are into Jeopardy, let them know about our podcast.
0: Uh, You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpodablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com.
1: We'll be back next week, or Kyle will. I think I'm, I'm still looking for a host to guest host to cover for me. But the podcast will be back next week with another week of Jeopardy episodes. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker.